Shockwave steps forward to prove he's the most evil Decepticon of all. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I do. Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries. What I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. Our comic this time around will be G.I. Joe and the Transformers number 3 which came out on December 12, 1986, and is the penultimate chapter of this ultimate team-up. It has a cover that's not as weak as last issue's cover, but isn't as good as issue one. It shows the Earth blowing up and Shockwave looking down at it, his hands apparently putting the world in his grasp, while the floating heads of Hawk, Dirge, Serpentor, Bumblebee, the Baroness, Omega Supreme, and Dr. Mindbender look on in horror. It's drawn by Al Milgram, it's that typical floating head-on-a-comic-cover sort of thing. So it's not as boring as the Decepticons watching the battle on a view screen cover from last issue, but it's not awesome by any means. This was the issue, by the way, that I actually lost for a period of time. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I do remember one time that I was flipping through the issues of this series that I had in my room, and I noticed that something was missing, although I could have sworn I had owned the issue. I think I actually remember searching for it, but then gave up and just read issue 4 without issue 3 and saw something shiny and whatever. But sometime later, I was going through this closet we had in our den, and a bunch of, among a bunch of magazines, papers, and other stuff we had was this copy of this issue. I don't, only, don't remember putting it there, but it's possible I did. I had a tendency to do that. I think it's possible my mother also cleaned the room at one point and just thrown it in there. Anyway, our creative team is the same we've had all along. Michael Higgins was the writer, art by Herb Trimpey and Vince Coletta, letters by Joe Rosen, colors by Yeltsin Yamatov, and Bob Harris was your editor, with Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief. This came out on December 2nd, 1986, with a cover price of $0.75 cents and a January of 1987 cover date. The title of the story is Ashes, Ashes. We open with a scene of absolute devastation, courtesy of Power Station Alpha, which is disrupting the Earth so much that the cities are crumbling. Of course, this actually isn't happening. It's just what Shockwave is saying will happen once they get the Power Station and do what they want with it. But first, certain matters have to be attended to, and that is their new alliance with Cobra. They meet with Dr. Mindbender and Serpentor, all the while with representatives of both sides think about how they're going to double-cross their allies, with the Decepticons planning on destroying the Earth, and Cobra planning on ultimately betraying the Decepticons in order to stop them. The Baroness, however, has something to attend to, and takes off. Meanwhile, a man named Mr. Blackrock, who upon further research, I discovered was a recurring character in the Transformers comics, and... Something I should have pointed out when I covered the last issue. He was the guy on the yacht. You know, the one that Joe's attacked the Cobra. Anyway, Blackrock heads to Joe headquarters where Mainframe and Crankcase are trying to reassemble Bumblebee. 
Blackrock knows what the Transformers are. He's had some experience with them. So he explains what's going on as best he can. While at the Ark, we see the funeral of Optimus Prime. Hawk lands in Richmond to see Barbara. And Tony's mom worries that as he's prepped for surgery. In Washington, D.C., Barbara heads to lunch at a fancy restaurant and is met by the Baroness. Apparently, Senator Larkin had made a deal with Cobra to get Power Station Alpha out of the picture. Although I have to admit, I'm not sure how she thought Cobra was going to be helpful. But basically, we're supposed to learn here that Barbara is the reason that Cobra found taking that Power Station so easy. But now Barbara regrets her decision. She feels like she's getting screwed. And not just by Hawk. The Baroness more or less laughs in her face and then Barbara leaves, but not before we learn that she was being followed by someone who was taking photographs of what was going on. Cobra attacks the Autobots of the Ark with Dirge among them. Hawk has a briefing at the Pentagon about Fire Station Alpha and sees pictures of the Baroness with Larkin. Tony's surgery is successful, and when the doctors poke at the Cerebro chip that had been in his brain, Bombshell transforms involuntarily. The doctor can't figure out what's up, so he ships the chip off to the Joes who at that moment have revived Bumblebee in the sense that they have rebooted his memory, but they don't have much else working. Then we cut back to Washington when Hawk confronts Barbara and tells her off. At the Ark, Cobra double-crosses their Decepticon allies and enters into an alliance with the Autobots as well as the Joes. We close with the three groups getting together to figure out how they will take down the Decepticons who have just launched Power Station Alpha to be concluded. For the longest time, uh, this is the issue I thought of the scariest of the three. I don't think it's actually scary. But maybe when I was a kid, the opening pages of the book where the end of the world was being depicted were a bit frightening in the way that any kid who grew up in the Cold War might find it. And cartoons of the time did that, especially shows based on anime properties like Voltron or Robotech. They weren't afraid to show wastelands or, or evil worlds or use red skies or minor keys or even the distortion guitar guitar sound that they used in Star Trek the motion picture whenever V'ger was making some sort of threatening move. So I can kind of see that being used here, even if this is speculation on the part of Shockwave, who's really the big bad of the entire series. And Shockwave, at least in the Transformers comics that I've read from this era, probably was the most evil Decepticon. Yeah, you had Megatron, who was the leader, but Megatron always seemed as... He always struck me as a classic, like, mustache-twirling villain, in a sense. I mean, not that caricaturish, but definitely someone cut from that villain mold. And it's around this time that Megatron has apparently died, so it makes sense that Shockwave would make some sort of play for power, especially he'd been pretty much trying to do the same thing all the way since all the way back in issue number four and five of the Transformers comic. But then again, my experience with Transformers comics then and now is very limited. Beyond the seven or eight issues I'm covering for this episode, there really never was much else. I personally never found them as engaging as G.I. Joe. Of course, I was playing with G.I. Joe toys way more than Transformers, so that was probably it. To get into the issue proper, there's a lot in here that is good and a lot moves the story along. It's the third in a four-issue series, so it sets up what's about to happen in the end. In the case of this plot, it's that the MacGuffin is a weapon of mass destruction and the Decepticons are more evil than the other villains are ready for. 
It's kind of like the villains learning, teaming up with the heroes to stop the Anti-Monitor in Crisis Number 10. Anyway, there's a couple of important things here. Minder Bender is going to try to sabotage Shockwave. The Josephson brought Bumblebee kind of back to life. That Tony kid has the surgery. I'm honestly not entirely sure why the Tony storyline exists. I, I would assume it has something to do with the Cerebro shell that Bombshell planted on him. And that's going to be a, co- a key plot point here. But it doesn't seem to serve too many other purposes. Now, the other subplot, which is Hawk and the Congresswoman, actually serves a purpose. It works pretty well. Barbara's collusion with Cobra is the type of moral ambiguity that drives a good story, and that also exists in Washington. This isn't a case of her secretly being a Cobra agent. It's more of her striking a deal that she thought would be advantageous but is working out, just as well as Lando Calrissian's deal with Darth Vader did. Hawk's response fits his character because he is always the stand-up good guy. And the way things are at the end of the story leaves you wondering if there's going to be some sort of redemption for Barbara in the next issue. Speaking of the next issue, I am a little wary. Yes, the story has set up a huge fight on all sides, and that should be really cool. But this art isn't holding up. I'm worried it'll be lackluster. I don't want to harp on too much about it because I already have this sort of rambling that I've been doing about the art in the last two parts of the series. Nothing has really changed. In fact, I know I said that the end of the world portion was scary, but that's because it looks scary in my imagination and not yet on the page. So it's really more the writing that makes this book what it is. One funny thing that I remember about owning this book is that I actually lost it for a while, like I said. You know, my comics, you know, my comics weren't in a collection that I stored in one place. I didn't own bags and boards. They wouldn't get they would get left at a desk or my room, the coffee table my mom would clean. Like I said, that's the thing that's what happened. You know, I said I found it in a closet of the den, and from what I remember, I found it on top of a book of magic tricks that my Aunt Frances had given me. It's a weird book, too. It was clearly from the 60s or something. Maybe she was cleaning her house and decided to wrap it up and give it to me as a gift. I mean, something she did sometimes. Uh, and she kind of, we kind of gave it a, her a pass on it because she was very old. But anyway, I think it was a few months before I actually found it. And I, there were times where I just read the series and skipping to number four. And number four will be where the next episode. And with that, I'll be right back. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime, never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I've ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them and then... Well, I I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. 
You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box, a podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide every Tuesday or so at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. So this issue came out in December. Like I said, the last time it was coming out of this I was in trouble period. I guess that since I did my time, it wasn't that big of a deal anymore. Plus, Christmas was coming, and that was so huge for me and my sister, especially since we were the type of kids who get used to, used to get a lot of toys. In fact, looking back, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, we weren't those kids who got each got their own versions of the same expensive toy. I mean, we had to share one another, and for the most part, we were grateful for what we had. But my parents and extended family were very comfortable, which basically is why I owned the Cobra Terror Drome. I've told this story before. Uh, if you go all the way back to issue, what was it, four or five of, of, of Pop Culture Affidavit, the Terror Drome wound up being unwrapped on Christmas Eve at my grandmother's house, courtesy of my Uncle Lou, who was so known for buying my sister and cousins and myself huge playsets that we called him the Toy King. The Toy King brought what was very pos- what were probably the two biggest toys my sister and I ever had, the Terror Drome and the My Little Pony Paradise Estates. These two things took up an entire corner of our basement, and I think we both wore them out completely until we gave them away in a huge toy purge when I was in junior high school. I think I had, I think I heard a few people wince there. Yes, um, you know, I have a nine-year-old kid, and recently went through a toy purge ourselves because Brett's gotten. Well, he's grown out a lot of his very old toys and we're running out of room in our basement to store and store the new stuff. So then we wanted to give him room to play more. And uh, he's also started transitioning to video games, so the toys are fading away. When I was nine, I was really toy-focused, and the Joes were the big one. In fact, I'm looking at the 1986 action figures on YoJo.com, and I can honestly say I've got all of them. Or I had all of them, and I got them all for Christmas. I did not have all the vehicles. There were a couple that would have been cool to have like the outpost defender battle station this was i swear nothing more than a bunch of sandbags a gun a canopy but from what it was seeing here looked really cool in the way that i thought the cobra night landing raft with which yes was just a raft was cool was a little surprising to me was when i fast forward to the winter of 87 the only two vehicles i got were the cobra sea ray and the cobra wolf maybe half of the figures the drop-off was there, and like I said, by Christmas of 88, I was, I was done. Honestly, I, I, I remember playing with them for at least another year or two when I finally gave them all up for good. And that didn't, that didn't mean all of them, really, because like I said, like a, unlike a handful of my Star Wars figures, I didn't keep any of my Joes. I remember sometimes in those last couple of years when my friends and I would play Joes, we would come up with some really elaborate storyline that we would set up like a Rube Goldberg device. You know, like we'd set up certain bases, give everybody a rule, and then we would dictate how things were going to go. And the setup would take like an hour, and the battle would take ten minutes because we'd argue over who got to be the hero and who needs to be rescued and who got away. The end result would be just the utter destruction of the basement, which we would just leave there to go watch a movie or play outside and that I wouldn't clean up until my parents marched me downstairs and made me do it. Although Nancy and I cleaned up by throwing everything into the closet that took up the entire wall of the basement anyway. So, you know, there you go. Although every once in a while we would do a huge reorganization and that would mean taking everything out of the closet and putting all the pieces together and making sure it was all in the right bins and all neatly arrayed. 
I do that sometimes still. I honestly don't know why I'm so fascinated with the idea of childhood being this jumbled mess of overlapping memories or how certain elements of pop culture played out over the years instead of going one at a time. Maybe it's because we all tend to do that to do nostalgia like it's a BuzzFeed list or that our internet fandom speaks sometimes gets into singular thinking. That's cool, at least to me. Though those Christmases had so much of an impact on me at the time and really are core to what I remember fondly. And that'll do it for now. Next time in about, oh, almost a month, I'll finish out G.I. Joe and the Transformers with issue number four. Until then, you can leave a comment on the Facebook page for Pop Culture Affidavit. You can look at the show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And thank you for listening, and take care.